Good morning, church. Happy Easter. Turn to your neighbor, give him a fist bump, and say, he arose. That's good news. Uh, just a real quick comment about Secret Church. We've hosted Secret Church for three years, three years, something like that, three years. So we're excited to do it once again. And uh, Jennifer will talk more about that, well, than she has already. So should be uh, information in your bulletin. Easter is a great, great, one of my favorite holidays, right? I mean, when you were kids, you would go out and you would hunt for Easter eggs, right? If you've never experienced that, you're about to experience it this afternoon, because uh, after church, we will have a picnic um, out at the park. We'll have an Easter egg hunt. Um, the team has devised a very creative way as to how they're going to get the kids to start, so I, I'm not going to ruin the surprise. I'm, I just encourage you to go. Um, it should be eventful, and uh, I, I love Easter because you get to find stuff. You get to find eggs. Uh, in our house, you hide an Easter basket, and if you didn't notice my Facebook post this morning, last year, uh, Miles came up to me, and he was like, Dad, can you hide the baskets next year, because mom, moms are just too easy to find, <laughs> and so... And so I said, okay, that's fine. And then Lana, she was like, can you please hide, hide the kiddos' Easter baskets? And so, um, yeah, I don't hold back at all. Uh, Cole still hasn't found his. <laughs> so, so um, good luck, son. <laughs> Maybe this June. Some, <laughs> so, uh, and, but these, these are fun traditions. But I have a confession to make to you today. And that is, I love discovering things. I don't know how many geocachers we have in the room. Any geo, no, don't even know what it is. Basically, there are people, it's like an underground cult that uh, exists right here in Missoula that goes out and hides things all over the city. Yeah, you're walking by them all the time. But you can go on geocache.com and it'll give you the general location of where that is. And if you happen to find it, then you can input it into this online system and stuff. Anyway, it's for Nerds United. And so um, I, I happen to love it. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. So uh, one of the confessions I have, that wasn't my actual confession. The real confession is this, that um, I am a dumpster diver. How many dumpster divers do we have? I can't even believe you're raising your hands. I didn't expect a single hand. Shame on you. No. <laughs> listen, listen. I love dumpster diving. And if you had known me back in Georgia uh, when we bought our first house, there was this um, dilapidated shed that was actually even leaning in the backyard, and it looked horrible, and it was horrible. And uh, I went in there and kind of renovated it from the inside. So I liked that it looked kind of crappy on the outside, right? But I filled it with all sorts of stuff. Because I was a concrete truck driver. It was my own business, and so we parked our trucks at storage units. And so I would park the truck at a storage unit, and I don't know if you've ever looked inside the dumpster of a storage unit, but it's fascinating. Because what happens is this. People eventually, you know, they become delinquent on their rent or something, and what they'll do is they'll throw all that garbage into the dumpster or something like that. They'll clean out. So you never know what you're going to find. So I found speakers, I found a little television, I put all that stuff in the shed, and I kind of renovated my shed with all this stuff that I could find in dumpsters. And so I would park the truck, and then I would wander over, you know, to the dumpster, kind of <laughs> peek inside real quick and, and see what was going on. Well, in 2005, there was one particular day, I went ahead and, and, and looked inside, and uh, I, I looked, and I, immediately what I recognized was all these picture frames. So there were all these picture frames. I thought, you know, maybe there's some good ones in there, you know. And so I start to reach in and, and, and go through stuff. It's still a habit that I have. I think that's why Bob put the fence around the one that's here. <laughs> but um, I, I, was, I was getting these picture frames, but they had pictures in it. And so I'm, I'm looking at it, and it's all this family stuff. And the more I start to dig through, I mean, I was finding all sorts of personal items. And my heart began to break a little bit. And so I eventually was like, well... I'm just going to go ahead and head on home. And as I was just about to leave, I looked, and I saw something. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Should I grab that? And this is it. It is, by far, the largest Bible that I now own. <laughs> it's 
can I, can I say that it's horrendous? Can you say that about the Bible? It's not that the text is horrendous, but look at it, though. I mean, it's got, like, gold, you know, all that, and then this beautiful picture of Jesus, you know. And it's fascinating because it's filled with all sorts of other pictures, you know, in case, um, you know, you, you don't understand what was happening. You can see the inspired, you know, pictures that were taken. And uh, it's, it's sort of illustrated and whatnot. It's a King James Version. I would never use this. I, I really haven't used it. So what was the problem? When I looked inside this dumpster, I saw this line there. And I was like, oh, boy, I don't think I really want that. And then I started to walk away. And I started to feel guilty. And then my guilt became kind of sort of like anger. I'm like, why would there be a Bible in the trash? I don't care who you are. If you're throwing stuff out, would you seriously throw a Bible in the trash? Is that really where it belongs? And it, it began to dawn on me. It's almost like people simply do not understand the power of the message that's between the two covers. And so I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was a little bit perturbed. You could call it maybe a spiritual, you know, anger, I suppose. But I went back, I, I, I jumped in there, and I, I grabbed the Bible, and I kept it, and I have, I've had it ever since. And I want to talk real quick about the core of that message. And I'm going to kind of blast through some things because this is an Easter message, which means I want to give you the rest of the story from where we all left off last week. And if you weren't here last week, what we talked about was Good Thursday. <laughs> you mean Good Friday, J.D.? No, I mean Good Thursday. Because Thursday was actually a pretty good day, just to be honest with you, at least until the sunset. I mean, Jesus had time with his disciples. He even shared a final meal with his disciples. And if you don't understand the power of, of that particular meal, I encourage you to go back and, and read um, in, in the book of John exactly what was happening at that particular meal. It is fascinating. Um, and the relational connections that were happening. So what I'm going to do that in is I'm going to take you through the rest of that particular story. I'm going to power through this because we have quite a bit of ground to cover. Um, essentially what was happening was this. There was this final supper, and they were celebrating the Passover meal, and Jesus would kind of tweak it. Now, nah, tweak's not a good word. I mean, we're talking about a full paradigm shift. He's fulfilling it is what he's doing. The Passover represented the deliverance of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. And so they were celebrating this, right, thousands of years later. But Jesus is now taking this, and he's saying, listen, I want you to use this as a memorial for a different kind of deliverance that they wouldn't understand at this moment, but they would later understand. And you find the account where he says, um, Jesus took a cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to them, he said, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it with you anew. New in my Father's kingdom. Now, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper a little bit later in, in this particular service. But what Jesus is doing is, is he's instituting a new tradition, a new memorial. And he's using the fruit of the vine, grape juice, and he's using unleavened bread, which is something they would be having during the Passover meal. And he's saying, this is what we will do, and you will always remember what's about to happen. And then it says, after singing a hymn, which I thought was kind of sweet, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus says these words. He says, you will fall away because of me this night. Now, they had such a pleasant day, such a great meal. The disciples don't know what's going to happen next. We do. They did not. And that's what he says. He quotes scripture in scripture that says, I will strike down the shepherd. The sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And of course, Peter said, even though all may fall away of you, I will never fall away. And that's where we talked about last week. And that is, what is your capacity for betrayal? Seriously, what's your capacity for sin? That plays a crucial role in today's message. Peter would then, of course, betray Jesus. But essentially what happened was this. They were in the garden. Jesus would pray fervently. You see Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. It's a fascinating chapter. I highly recommend that you read that chapter if you want to know what Jesus Christ was thinking right before he would go to the cross. That's where you should go. They would be betrayed. They would be betrayed by Judas. And remember that Judas was at this meal. Judas was at this meal even before the meal happened. Jesus would then wash the feet of everyone. He would serve them including Judas. But he also knew what Judas was up to. It's interesting because Jesus knows what's going to happen 
As to the details, I'm not sure how much he knew. You got to remember, Jesus was limited in some of his knowledge. So I think, personally, I think it was a surprise that when they're in the garden, they're going to be betrayed, but they don't know who to arrest. The soldiers don't know who to arrest. And so Judas goes up and gives a sign of who to arrest. He approaches Jesus and gives him a kiss. And Jesus is like, Judas, you betray me with a kiss? That was the last dialogue that would happen between the two of them. Jesus is arrested, and he's immediately put on trial. He's taken all sorts of different places. He's, he, first, he's taken to this man named Annas. And honestly, the guy used to be a high priest, but he's not anymore. He's just a big shot, right? And they really want that guy's support because then they take him to this thing called the Sanhedrin, and he's on this, on this trial that's all of these Jewish people, and they're going to convict him. But see, they really need to get permission from Rome. So eventually, by about 6 o'clock in the morning, they take him to Pilate, and Jesus stands trial before Pilate. Now, he, remember, he's the Roman governor of Judea, and this is under the emperor Tiberius Caesar, all right? But as soon as Pilate hears that Jesus is a, a Galilean, Jesus then sends him to Herod. Now, this isn't Herod the Great, the guy who killed all the babies when Jesus was born. This is Herod Antipas. We went through a lesson on this. Herod Antipas had at least five different sons, and the first son did not get the crown after Herod the Great. The second son did not either, neither did the third. But the fourth one, Herod Antipas, did. He also married just a beautiful woman named uh, Herodias, and she's a piece of work. She's the one who asked for John the Baptist's head. And so Jesus is taken to this man, Herod Antipas. He's not a big fan of Herod Antipas. In Luke 13, he, he calls him that fox, you know, that kind of thing. But Herod is excited. Because why? He wants to see a miracle. And so he's badgering Jesus to perform some type of a miracle. But nothing happens. Eventually, he doesn't know what to do with them, and so he sends them back to Pilate. Pilate thought he took care of the problem. Nope. Jesus shows up once again. Now we're at approximately around 7 a.m. in the morning or so. So he's brought back. Pilate can see that the people are very agitated. And so in Luke chapter 23, it, it goes through this, this situation where you see Pilate having to take care of the situation, and, and you could tell that deep down inside, he knows there is nothing wrong with this particular person. He keeps saying, what guilt? What guilt is there? I find no guilt in him. Show it to me. And he goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. He says to Jesus straight up, are you the king of the Jews? Right? He's, he's, he's asking the leaders, he's like, what if I... What if I do this? If, if I punish this, this man who's claiming to be king of the Jews and then I release him, in other words, I could punish him really, really well. I, you know, he would be screaming in pain. Would that allow you to just be okay with the situation? Because you see, Pilate has to find some level of guilt before he's going to sentence somebody to death. Of course, that doesn't help at all. Eventually, Pilate's wife comes to him, and she says, have nothing to do with Jesus. I had a dream, and I suffered greatly because of him, and it's a sign. There's some truth in there, right? So Pilate then says to the crowd and to the leaders, how about this idea? What if I give you a choice? There was a tradition that he could do this, where he would take a criminal and release a particular criminal, right? And so he's saying, what if the choice that you get to make between the two criminals is this particular guy who I'm having trouble finding out what the problem is, and Barabbas, who we all know what the problem is. This guy is a murderer. Like he's, I think he went and tried to get the worst of the worst. Because what's, what, what's the obvious conclusion? They would never choose Barabbas, right? So he puts Barabbas before them. And shocker, they're like, release Barabbas. We'll take him over this guy, Jesus. And the crowd gets more and more stirred up. Eventually, they say, we would have Barabbas. Pilate would say, why? What evil has he done? The crowd would begin to just crying out, crucify, 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 crucify. And finally, they say some magical words. They say, you know, if you don't do what we're saying, then you are no friend of Caesar. And that would do the trick. So finally, Pilate says, okay. I'll sentence him to death. And so he sentences Jesus to be crucified. At the same time, he washes his hands. He says, I want no part of this. His blood not be on my hands. And the people all cried out that his blood would be on theirs. He is then led away to Cal Calvary. 
And uh, this is recorded in all four of, of, the, of the Gospels, not just the synoptics. The Romans stripped Jesus. They put a scarlet robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on him. Now, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news, but uh, the fire that happened over in Notre Dame, the cathedral over there, I guess one of the, the artifacts that perished was what they assumed to be the crown of thorns that Jesus would wear. And so they had this crown of thorns. Now, when they put the crown of thorns, it's not like they made a nice, beautiful little wreath of thorns and then kind of placed it there. They literally would beat it on him or they would press it down. The thorns are what's keeping it in place. They beat him with uh, about the head. They spat on him. They punched him. They would yell at him. They would say, prophesy, who beat you? Pilate made a sign that read, King of the Jews. Eventually, Jesus, he had to hold his own cross and drag it down the street to his own death. He no longer had the strength to do it. They finally said, all right, somebody else needs to do this. And so they found a guy named Simon. They pressed him into service, and he picked up the cross and carried it the rest of the way for Jesus. Eventually, they got to a place called Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. The crucifixion was probably around what they call the third hour, probably around 9 a.m. or so, but he's crucified on a cross. The way in which you're crucified on a cross, typically there were two ways. Now, if you speak with a Jehovah's Witness, what they're going to tell you is that the cross did not look like this. It was simply a pole. Ironically, translations do. Many of them read that it was a pole because a crucifixion could happen with a straight pole where you would have both hands put above your head like so with one nail piercing through. Usually the wrist bones is where that would go. And then the second nail at your feet. All right, that could have been the case. But tradition tells us, nope, that there was a cross beam as well, and so Jesus had his hands pinned on both sides, and then also his feet. Evidently, it was very difficult when you were pinned to a cross to breathe because you literally would have to push up with your feet just to allow your diaphragm to expand, right, and have breath. Many times people would suffer from uh, some type of suffocation. And so gradually he would lose more and more strength. And around 10 a.m. he was continued to be insulted and, and mocked. They were uh, throwing his words back in his face. He, they would say things like this. So you can destroy the temple and build it again in three days, can you? Because that's what he said, remember? Well, then if you're the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. Save yourself and come down from the cross. This is crucial to today's lesson. Did he have the power for that? Yes, absolutely. But he chose otherwise. Mark 15 says the leading priests and teachers of the religious law also mocked Jesus. They said things like, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Even the Roman soldiers who were there watching the whole thing play out, they said, um, we're also mocking him, and they were giving him drinks of sour wine, they were calling out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now they're talking about his king, kingliship. If you're the king, do something, right? And of course, the criminals. Originally, it may have been that both criminals were hurling abuse at Jesus. But eventually, one of them would say this. One criminal would, would, would say, aren't you the Christ? Then save yourself and save us. And the other criminal rebuked him and he said, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we've been punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom and all of a sudden, here's the thief on the cross and it looks like he's the lone believer in the entire crowd, Right? And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. Then Jesus does something that has really touched me for years. It's touched me. In John chapter 19, it says that when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple that he loved, which is John, Jesus said to her, woman, here is your son. And he said to his disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home, and there he is, even pinned to a cross, taking care of his mom. Darkness then begins to cover the land. It says at around the sixth hour, around 1 p.m. or so, give or take, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. The words that he says is, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something else to remember. He's thirsty, and so what they do is they get a jar of sour wine, and they put it on a sponge. They hold it up to him so that he can drink. Eventually, he says, it is finished. 
He yields up his spirit. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathes his last. Soon after, an earthquake would rock the land. The curtain that is in the temple that separates the holy place, all right, was torn in two from top to bottom. There's some strange things that began to happen. It says tombs broke open. Bodies of many holy people who had died were raised up. Even the centurion who is standing there, he's starting to see all these different things happening. And he turns and he says, surely this was the Son of God. The other thieves, they haven't died yet, so the soldiers break their legs and they go up to break Jesus's. And of course, they see that he's already dead. And so here's this unblemished lamb who has no broken bones. And that fulfills scripture as well. Eventually, he would be laid in a tomb, not just any tomb, but the tomb of a rich man. He would be wrapped up in cloths, and there he would lay. And then came Saturday. We don't really talk about Saturday. I gave a lesson about five years ago on Saturday. Saturday is a tough day. John Ortberg writes these words. He says, so far as we know, there, are on, there has only been one day in the last 2,000 years when literally not one person in the world believed that Jesus was alive. But then Sunday would come. And Sunday comes and Sunday, I want you to remember this, Sunday is a time of surprise. I mean, if Saturday is as dark as it is, obviously Sunday is a surprise. In Luke chapter 23, we find that that, uh, um, Joseph of Arimathea had buried Jesus with the help of several women, and so they're coming back to see the tomb in Luke chapter 24. So they're coming back to see the tomb, and it's Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and then also this woman named Salome. I don't think it's the one that danced, but who knows? There's these three women, and here they're coming, and they're going to anoint the body with more spices. But what happens when they get there? They see some angels, and it's funny because um, Mary thinks that it's, uh, Mary Magdalene thinks that she's speaking to a, a, a gardener, and she wants to know where the body of Jesus is, and John tells us that Jesus approaches the women, says, Mary, she screams out, Rabbi, and she grabs him, you know, for who knows how long. Eventually, what would happen is this more and more people would begin to realize that tomb was empty. The stone would be rolled away in Matthew's account. There would be an angel sitting inside. The guards would become like dead men, right? Eventually, those guards would be approached by the priests because they would hear about all of this and they would pay off those guards and they would say, okay, make sure, make sure that you don't give the real account because um, it looks like the whole prophecy of the Son of God stuff's coming true. They didn't say all that. But I mean, that's the fear that they have. And even then, they're saying, we want you to say that the disciples came and stole the body. And guess what? That rumor, it, it worked. It stuck for a long time because of what these soldiers would later say. There would be people who would talk about this. We have a a situation where there's uh, two people walking along this road that was going to a town of Emmaus, uh, a guy named Cleopas and his companion, talking about the crucifixion story, and all of a sudden, Jesus walks alongside them. They don't recognize him, right? He probably didn't have the crown thorns. You know, it's like, they just thought he was another guy, and they're talking about it, and Jesus pretends like he doesn't know anything, and he's like, "What what are you talking about? And they're like, have you not been on Facebook? No, they didn't say that. <laughs> They're like, have you, are you the only one in Judea who has not heard of the things going on? And they recount the events, right? I'm, I'm, I'm so curious how accurate they were with the events and if Jesus corrected any of them, you know? Like, and Jesus was crying like a baby up there. You know, like, would Jesus let that fly? I don't know. But anyway, Jesus then says, hey, listen, if you want to understand this, let me take you back in Scripture. And so Jesus takes them back in Scripture and says, these are the prophecies that would lead to that moment. Don't you understand? And later the two men would say, our hearts were burning inside of us. Jesus was raised from the dead. He begins to appear to all sorts of different people. It's such a great message that we talk about it over and over and over again. And we have all of these wonderful stories that we share during Easter because there are at least 12 different examples where the resurrected Lord would appear to different people. Sometimes he would reprimand them, right? There's at least a couple apostles that he reprimands. 
I'm going to let you go through the scriptures yourself and, and, and find that. But it's fun to look at. It's fun, it's fun to talk about. Jesus, I mean, John the apostle writes these words. He said, therefore, there were many other signs that Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That by believing you may have life in his name. So it's not just a remarkable event. There's something very personal tied to it. That you would have life. Even in Isaiah 53, which was, of course, a prophecy of Jesus, it says these words, it says that when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he's talking about the Messiah, he's talking about Jesus Christ, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all of their sins. The significance of what has happened also comes to light. And people begin to realize there's something here that's greater than just a remarkable event where we see another resurrection. Do you believe in resurrection? That was my original question. So here's what I want to do. I want to take you through the gospel message very quickly, once again. I, want, I, want, uh, I, I made a diagram for you, and so I'm going to walk through this um, pretty fast. But essentially, from the very beginning, we had God our Father, right? And He made all things. He made the earth. He made everything that's in it, the, the Genesis account, right? And all of it was great. And so we had two people that lived inside of this, Adam and Eve, because He created them as well, male and female, right? And they lived, and they lived in community. In other words, they were able to connect with each other and in this place called Eden, right? And so there they were together. They literally could walk and talk with each other because Eden was perfect and everything was great. I wish and I hope that we get to have a snapshot of what that looked like, right? But eventually, sin would enter into the picture. Both Adam and Eve would disobey God. They would eat from this tree that God specifically told them not to eat from, but they wanted to pursue their own interests. I'm also curious about how long it took for them to finally pursue that. It could have been days. It could have been years. Who knows, right? But eventually, because of that one sin, something happened. You see, God in His purity and in His holiness and in all of His glory, He cannot exist in the presence of sin it was inevitable that once sin came into the picture, there would be an, a gulf, a chasm, so to speak, where there would no longer be this perfect place called Eden, and we would be separated from God. We would be separated in such a way that by the time we were done on this earth, all that remained for us was death. But then, Jesus would come, which is what we're talking about. You see, what's interesting about Jesus is if you've been keeping up with this particular series, he is the son of God. It's God himself. You see, there's nothing that could bridge that gap. There's nothing we could do ourselves. I think sometimes people feel as though, oh, I could live really, really clean, and I could live a holy life, and that will get me closer and closer to God. And I think there's something inside of our humanity that assumes that that is true. It's not. Everybody has sinned, and we live on a cursed earth that is rocked with sin. It is broken because of sin. And there is nothing that anybody can do about it. You see, justice is one of those, those, I don't know what to call it, an essence that's also deep inside of our heart. But in many ways, we don't understand justice, and in some ways, we do. We know that if justice is violated, something must be done to then satisfy the injustice. We know that. We know that as kids, right? I've given this example before. If you see someone on a playground push another kid down on the ground and it's very unjust and not fair and he's being bullied, something inside of you sh should kind of click where you're like, that wasn't right. Justice needs to happen. Something needs to fix the injustice and so we want the kid punished. Hey, listen, that sits inside of all of us. That sits inside of every culture. But if you're really gonna understand justice, you have to understand there does require something that turns 
the injustice just. Sometimes we refer to this as the wrath of God. And we always think of angry people when we think of the wrath of God. No, I think it's just the nature of what it means to be holy. If it's made unholy, what's going to happen to make it holy again? That's the dilemma. So God says, I'll send myself. He calls him his son. This triune God sends Jesus. His name isn't Jesus in heaven. His name is Christ, right? And he sends him down to this earth in the form of a man, which means he's going to be both man and Christ together. And that little combination, imagine parenting that little combination, right? Watching that grow up for the next 33 years, that combination was called Jesus. Sometimes we put the two together, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. But that's what was on earth. And what would happen is this, is that what if he could exist in man, but be completely spotless, no sin whatsoever? Which means that if that's true, he could place himself on a cross, and eventually he could take the place of sin right here. And sin would be on him. What sin? All of it. The brokenness of this world. Your sin, your sin, your sin, my sin. All of it throughout human history. A sacrifice that would take all of the stuff that separates us from God, placed upon him, and offered up as a sacrifice, and now the injustice is corrected. It's a remarkable plan. That's what we're celebrating here. And because of it, we then have this bridge. I grew up with this, this type of a model right here, this illustration where we have this chasm, and there's a bridge, and now we find ourselves coming face to face with God, and that is true. That is why we get so excited about the Easter message because we're here to tell you right now, he was raised up in three days proving that he truly was the son of God and because he was unblemished, he carries your sin and all you have to do as we just read was believe, right? It's a wonderful message. And I'm sure you know that John David or JD or however you know me is probably going to challenge this. I feel like there's still something missing with this illustration. Not, not with the truth that I just gave you. I'm not here to change the gospel for crying out loud. I want to try to deepen your understanding of it. I feel as though there's something missing and I have asked you several times, do you believe in resurrection? I didn't ask you if you believed in the resurrection. I think many of you believe in the resurrection. I'm asking if you believe in resurrection. There's a, a diagram that I learned. It's from the Allender Institute, just to give credit where credit is due. There's a particular um, uh, podcast I would love for you to look into. It's by a, um, uh, a counselor, a psychiatrist named um, Adam Young, and he's in uh, Colorado. The, the name of the podcast, if you're interested, is called The Place We Find Ourselves, all right? The Place We Find Ourselves. Fantastic. Start with podcast number one. Don't jump to the most popular. Just go with number one. Anyway, so Adam Young brings up this particular model. He calls it the U diagram, which I'm quite disappointed in because it's so non-creative, for crying out loud. It's shaped like a U. But essentially, here's the idea, is that there is a chasm that exists between these two places, but there's something else that is inside the chasm itself that we do not like to talk about, and it is death. That's the part that I feel like so often what we will do is we'll tend to, to skip over it. But the way that this works is this, is that the bottom of the U represents sort of the, the valley of the shadow of death, right? It's, it's that wilderness that, you know. And our old self, what will happen is this, is that our old self right here actually will die. We undergo death, right? I mean, we're supposed to die, and then eventually... What happens is, is because, no, sorry, Ethan, you're doing great. Didn't mean to jump ahead. We die to ourselves. And we have scripture that, that, that shows us. But we die to ourselves, and what we do is we hate talking about this. We hate going to this place. But here's the problem. If you can't accept the death that you have undergone or that you are going through, then you will never experience the resurrection. 
How can we as Christians claim to understand resurrection or say that we believe in resurrection when we avoid death? What we'd rather do is this, is we'd rather just sort of make a bridge. And it's not just Christians. I mean, this is all humanity. We would much rather stay out of this pit and not go to where there is darkness, where there is pain, where there is misery, where, is, where there is, the, 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 as I said, the valley of this shadow of death. Instead, we'd rather dance along here and move because this is Friday right here. And this is Sunday. And we, especially as Christians, we're like, oh no, listen, when you put on Jesus, you've got a new identity. And it's in Christ. And the rest of it doesn't matter anymore. Is that true? Well, yes, and no. Does your sin identify you? Yes, uh, no, but yes. I think churches are the worst at this. Man, this is your Sunday morning service. We'd rather just show the world that, oh, we're doing fine, right? Hey, I, I need you guys to pray for me because I've been going through some hard stuff lately. Classic prayer. Is that true? Oh, yeah but it keeps you up here versus someone who comes and says, listen, I need you to pray for me because this addiction is rocking my world and I can't handle it anymore. And I feel like I'm running out of options. Now suddenly we're experiencing something much deeper. Adam Young says these words, he says, there is no way to get joy and rest without going through the valley of the shadow of death. You can get to denial and a superficial sense of being better, but not healing and genuine joy. Think about Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We love the back part of that verse. But remember what's on the front part. I've been crucified. Did I tell you what crucifixion was like? It's filled with pain. Chapter 5, verse 24, now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So what does this look like? This looks like you have to come face to face with the sin in your life. I know your sin does not define who you are. That's true. But it is a piece of your resurrection. It's a part of your death. And if you're not going to come face to face with your death, the joy of your resurrection will be limited. I know this for a fact because I have a front row seat to it. I had no idea that I would be diving this deep into the valley of the shadow of death when I decided, hey, listen, church, let's address the sin around sexual addiction. There's a reason nobody else wants to talk about it. For the first time in my life, I'm actually seeing a counselor. Don't applaud. It's a, it's a very healthy, healthy thing. We talk about this often because I'm so frustrated that so many Christians, go back, Ethan, are going to stand right up here on this little bridge thing that, that we're looking at instead of get down into the depths of what we have come out of. Because guess what? Resurrection is a place of surprise. It's a place of surprise. And I've seen that too because I've seen people who are broken who will sit in my office and they will say, I've tried everything. I can't, I can't get past this pornography addiction. I've done everything. And there's that sense of despair. And then slowly, through work, through prayer, through a surrendering to Jesus as Lord, they begin to experience the resurrection. You don't know when, you're not sure how, but it is always this place of surprise. But here's the best part, is that even though we find ourselves in that place, we are not alone. 
You know, it, it, was, it was painful for me to look and see a dumpster that's filled with someone's life. Why would they throw away pictures of their kids? I mean, is it safe to assume something had happened that caused some level of brokenness? There was a part of me that wanted to gather up all that stuff, find out in a, in a non-creepy way, find out whoever that person was and mail it to them. I had no idea how to do that. Does this belong in a dumpster? I've changed my mind. I think it does. You see, Jesus descended. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 says some very interesting things. Let me say this to you real quick. It says, all of this they were surprised that you do not... Oh, I'm sorry. Um, in all of this, they're surprised. He's talking about the people of the world. They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, the same sin. So they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Who would preach the gospel to those who are already dead? You, you, you should look this up. What happened to Jesus on Saturday? Where do you think he went? Back up to heaven? Ephesians 4 says this, uh, but to each one of us grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended on the high, he led a captive of hosts of captives. He led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, verse 9, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Philippians 2 also says God exalted him, gave to him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. It's a fascinating study. But I believe Jesus descended. I think he descended into the place of Hades, which is really the realm of death. Many Catholics believe that he descended actually into hell. Like you'll find paintings of that. I think it's something that we can we could talk about and squabble over, but I, I personally think he descended into this place of death, and that's where he was. And I, I love the metaphor that it leaves us is that we are not alone by ourselves, even in those places, and it's going to feel that way because when you find yourself with any type of an addiction, you're not wanting to share it with anyone. You'd rather conquer it by yourself. And you're like, you know what? I don't need anyone. I'm going to do that myself. When it comes to the anger that might be in your heart, your, your valley of the shadow of death might have anger. Seeds of wrath that you store up and you keep there. And it's bitter. And you think to yourself, well, I'm going to work on this. I hear that all the time. Well, I'm working on it. I can do this. It's, I got this, right? Our tendency is to simply stuff those things deeper and deeper and to traverse over them. My encouragement to you is, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, do not avoid Saturday. Do not avoid the death that you have gone through. It will serve a purpose that is much greater than you could ever realize. Romans chapter 6 says these words, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Ephesians 2 says these words, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. He's speaking to disciples. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he raised us up in, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
This Easter, I want you to think about the death of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I also want you to think about your own death and resurrection. What's the sin that has you bound up? What are the things that need to be put to death? What parts of yourself are you more in love with that you know are only going to destroy you? Can you come face to face with that? Here's another question, church. Do we allow it? Do we allow ourselves to have that level of conversation? If I'm going to stand up here and encourage people that, hey, you should go into the pit of death, will we provide a context that's safe enough, that's supportive enough? In a second, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to be taking communion. And uh, while we take that communion, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to start thinking about what your role is with each other. Not just with yourself, but with each other. What happens is, oh, sorry, Ethan. <laughs> there you go. What happens is this. It's once we find ourselves in that communion with God and we enjoy what it means to be living in the kingdom, which is still a big portion right here on earth as it is in heaven, right? Jesus doesn't say, okay, good job. Let's just gather up in our church buildings where it's safe. What's his words? Go. Go where? Go back out into this world. What are you supposed to be doing? This bridge is Sunday religion. It's the kind of religion that I am so sick of because I'm not going to spend all week just preparing a sermon so that you can feel happy and safe from what is down here. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to go back. We've been told to go back. Paul talks about going back. He talks about the fact that guess what? You're not in this alone. You're here with each other. And so if I'm going to go into the valley of the shadow of death, I need to know that someone's going to be there with me. And will you be there? If we're going to fight sexual addiction, there better be people right there who are safe, loving, accepting. They might be still struggling with their own death, but at least you're not doing it alone. You have Jesus Christ right there next to you, and you have your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me read a few things for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We obtain an inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. It's literally reserved in heaven for you. It's waiting for you. That's the nature of reserved, okay? You don't get to grab it up yet. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Do you believe that message? That's the Apostle Peter writing to a bunch of people who are literally living down in that pit. It's the same message that we get to read to ourselves. It's really hard on me to end this series. Really tough. We've, this is like the 13th week been called knowing Jesus, drawing closer and closer to who he is. But this aspect of who he is is the part that resounds the most in my heart, that he's down in this pit and he's there with me and he's there with you. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. We also call it communion. We call it communion because guess what? 
we do it together. <laughs> we get to commune alongside each other. The way this will work is this. We've got uh, unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine over there on this side over here and also in the back. There's also a contribution plate. Listen, that's not us saying, hey, pay up, right? <laughs> but if you believe this message, how much do you owe? You wrestle with that yourself. The money that you contribute to Echo is meant to further the work of, F of Echo, all right? But whether you're putting it in that plate or you're letting go of it somewhere else, think about what you're giving back to God because you have been given so, so much. Let me read these words, then I'll say a prayer, and we'll have communion together. You can stand up and, and, and go to those different places. Listen to these words. Therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner for serving the Lord, I beg you to lead a life that is worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, there is one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Great God, thank you so much for today. Lord, thank you for Easter. Thank you that we get to just dwell in your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection. Lord, allow us to also come face to face with the fact that we have died, that we have died to self. And in that death, Lord, we do not ignore it. We do not stuff it deeper. We do not push it away from us but rather we embrace it, at least at some level, so that we can experience the resurrection that you have given us. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the resurrection, and thank you for our resurrection. Lord, there are people here right now, in this midst right here, right now, who have not faced the death that they need to face. I don't know what that is. My prayer, Lord, is that you would give them the wisdom, but ultimately the courage to go down into that place. May they not do it alone. And may we as a church not allow them to go alone. Allow us to know what it means to confess and to be transparent in ways where we are down there together knowing that you are beside us as well. Lord, be with these people, whoever they might be at this time, Lord. We thank you for the memorial that Jesus gave right there at that wonderful, pleasant little supper where he said, do this in remembrance of me. May we remember all of these things, Lord, as we partake of the fruit of the vine, the grape juice, and then also the, the unleavened bread. And as we eat these two things, Lord, and as we walk amongst each other, and as we pray with each other, and as we gather up with each other, and as we commune with each other, may we draw on the strength that God's family provides. We thank you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.